Good morning, church. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8. I'm sure by this time you're already there. Verses 39 through 47 is our text this morning. And I want to remind you for the sake of context that Jesus is in a middle of a dialogue with the Jews. And in last week's sermon, we covered verses 31 through 38, and we saw that Jesus' words and work are the means to freedom from sin so that you might continually believe on him and walk in his word. We outlined that text with four commands. We followed abide in the word of Jesus. Do not underestimate your natural status as as a slave to sin. Behold the redeeming son and know that your response to Christ indicates who your true father is. And this week's text really continues that fourth command. Namely, our text this morning deals with identifying one's spiritual father. Identifying one's spiritual father. And so that said, I do invite you now to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only God, and this is his word. John 8, beginning at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if you were your father, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You're of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we can simply acknowledge you as Father through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we read a text like this, Lord, we ought to be humbled because there was a time where every person in this room had the devil as their father. And Lord, there are some here today listening to my voice who may still 
of the devil as their father. Lord, would you give us a fresh understanding of the importance of your word such that we hear from you this morning, that we take to heart what you say, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted in our midst and that we would be humbled, that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish as they were destined to do, but shall have everlasting life as adopted children of God. May the saints be humbled and you be exalted. And may the proud in our midst be humbled. Lord, would you help us to acknowledge that apart from you, we have nothing to offer, we can do nothing. But that in you, we find satisfaction in the true meaning of life. Holy Spirit, have your way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers, sisters, and friends, your behavior says much about who you are. In other words, how you regularly conduct yourself outwardly is actually a manifestation of who you are inwardly. There is much truth in the old adage, actions speak louder than words. Yes, of course, words are necessary. But if one's lifestyle constantly contradicts their words, then there is warrant, and it is appropriate to question the truthfulness of those words. If I were to tell you that I'm a Los Angeles Lakers fan, but I constantly and continually root for the Los Angeles Clippers, and there's warrant for you to question the truthfulness of the statement that I made about being a Lakers fan. Why? Because Lakers fans don't cheer for the Clippers even if the Lakers are out of the playoffs and the Clippers are still in it. That's just the way it is. Beloved, with much more at stake, with much more at stake. If you say that God is your father, then that statement must be proven true through tangible and definable fruit in your life. It must. We understand that God adopts us as his children solely by his grace and for his glory. We understand that. But we also understand that being a child of God is expressed in and through our conduct. Indeed, if God is our Father, then we will grow, just as natural children do, into his likeness. What we have in this text this morning is a crowd insisting that God is their Father. But Jesus insists otherwise. So the question for you this morning is, who is your spiritual father? 
And perhaps more importantly, does Jesus agree with who you say your spiritual father is? The main idea of our text this morning is that this passage indicates that there are at least four questions that must be answered in order to determine who your spiritual father is. At least four questions that must be answered in order to determine who your spiritual father is. Quite simply, it's this. What do you do? What do you love? What do you desire? And what do you hear? Let us begin with the first question, what do you do? And look with me, please, at verses 39 through 41. The text says, They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Remember in verses thirty seven and thirty eight. Jesus has already acknowledged their assertion that they are Abraham's children. He says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And so they're picking up that Jesus is pushing against their assertion, their claim, and so they respond by insisting first that Abraham is their father. They discern Jesus' inherent challenge to their claim. And so what do they do? They double down. No, Jesus, you're wrong. We are right. Once again, as we remember from last week, they thought that being the physical offspring of Abraham equated to having a right relationship with God. They claim Abraham as both their physical and their spiritual father. But in reality, Abraham was only their physical father. For those in this text do not have the faith of Abraham. And so Jesus simply says, if you were really Abraham's children, then you would be doing the works that Abraham did. It's a simple counter-argument, and immediately it draws the reader to ask this question, well, what are the works that Abraham did? And it's really simple. Abraham believed God, and Abraham obeyed God. Abraham believed God, and Abraham obeyed God. Before we go too far, let's just acknowledge the obvious. Was Abraham a sinful man? Yes. Did Abraham believe and obey God? Perfectly? Absolutely not. You go ahead and you read through the book of Genesis and you're going to find out Abraham failed quite a few times. Nevertheless, Abraham is a man who is characterized by believing God and obeying God. We see this first in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9, which is really the foundation or the building block of the Abrahamic covenant. And to boil it down, God said, go... And Abraham went. We see it again in Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. 
We see it again and maybe most clearly in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. And we all know the story. God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. You want to test your faith? That's a test. And we understand that God intervened and that he spared Isaac. Nevertheless, Abraham was obedient. And he so believed God's word that what? The book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. Hebrews eleven nineteen. He knew that God would carry out his promises through Isaac. And it was his trust in God that allowed him to submit to God's command, yes, even to offer his own sacrifice. Because he knew that the Lord does not relent on his everlasting promises. Genesis 26, verse 5. This is after Abraham died. And this is the Lord speaking of Abraham. And he simply says this, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Abraham believed God and obeyed God. Perfectly, no. Characteristically, yes. Really, when we think about it, the great works of Abraham, catch this, the great works of Abraham are really not the great works of Abraham at all. The great works of Abraham are really the great works of God. For it is God, for it is God who enables men to believe him and to obey him. When God honors our belief, when God honors our obedience, and he does, you know what he's actually doing? He's actually honoring himself such that we can exclaim, all glory be to God. And we've already seen in this gospel, you must be born again, which is something that you take no part in. The most severe contrast to doing the works of Abraham is exactly what Jesus charges his audience with. He says that they seek to kill him, a man who has told them the truth that he has heard from God. And it's interesting here that Jesus seemingly compares himself with Abraham. He compares himself to Abraham by declaring that he is also a man who listens to God and responds by doing that which he heard. We've seen this concept over and over again in the gospel that Jesus does what? He simply does what the Father calls him to do. Remember back in 519, Jesus speaking says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. He says in the same chapter, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He said in chapter 8, verse 29, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus Jesus characterizes his life and his ministry as simply pleasing God, yet the Jews seek to kill him. You see, 
their actions betray the identity that they claim for themselves. They say we are children of Abraham. In a moment, they're going to say we're children of God, yet their very actions say otherwise. And Jesus makes that crystal clear when he says this is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. And they immediately respond, well, we, we are not born of sexual immorality. And the focus here is really not primarily on sexual sin, but it's really on being legitimate children. Of course, we understand that sexual immorality, especially in their context, would bring about illegitimate children. But the Jews are really exclaiming, we are not illegitimate children. In other words, their physical lineage was pure, such that they believed they had a legitimate birthright as the people of God. Since we're children of Abraham, let's take it a step higher. You say, no, Jesus, you seek to disassociate us with Abraham. Well, try to disassociate us with God, because not only are we Abraham's children, but we're God's children as well. Such that they say, we have one father, even God. And again, in the mind of the modern reader, you and I, we are drawn back to the first 18 verses of the book of John. The first 18 verses are what's known as the prologue, and we've said many times from this pulpit that if you're going to understand the gospel of John, you have to rightly grasp those first 18 verses for over and over and over again. They're going to be alluded to and talked about. And so while they say, hey, because we're Abraham's children, we are God's children, we immediately remember John 1, verses 11 through 13. He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people, his own ethnic people, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To have God as your father, you must be born of God. So important for us to understand God does indeed, and praise his glorious name for it, he does indeed adopt spiritual children in time on the basis of his gracious, loving election outside of time. And we understand that the flesh, material part of man, bloodline, lineage, heritage, it availeth nothing. Physical fatherhood does not indicate spiritual fatherhood. And what Jesus has highlighted so far is that if you were truly God's children, then you would be doing the things that Abraham did. In other words, you would be acting in accordance with your spiritual father. So we have to ask ourselves, and it's good and right for us to ask ourselves, what do I do? What do you do? What is your life characterized by? What you do says much about who your spiritual father is. What I don't want us to overlook 
is the simple reality that Abraham is simply put as a person who did primarily two things. He believed God and he obeyed God. Can you say that increasingly, consistently, that as you open the word of God and as you hear the word of God, that by his grace and in the power of the spirit, you are more and more characteristically being realized as someone who believes God and obeys God? If so, then praise God. This is one of the questions that we need to answer in defining and identifying our spiritual father. But we also need to look at a second question. What do you love? What do you love? Or perhaps, better put, who do you love? Because actually, who you love often flows, or rather, what you love often flows from who you love. And so look with me, please, at verse 42. After they say that God is their father... Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Jesus' opponents went from speaking of Abraham as their father to God as their father, and Jesus goes right along with them. If it is true that the Jews were using an argumentative trump card, if you will, going from Abraham to God, then unfortunately for them, Jesus isn't persuaded. As a matter of fact, their actions displayed that they were both spiritually disassociated from Abraham, yes, but also they were separated from God. And we could think of it this way. Anyone who claims to love God will if they truly love God, also love Jesus. There are so many people who claim to love God. So many people. But what do they do? They, they redefine God. And Christian, this is a non-negotiable for you. This is a non-negotiable for you. We love people by telling them the truth. If someone claims to have a right relationship with God, yet they reject Christ... You need to lovingly, yet unswervingly, correct that mentality. They need to love the God of the Bible, which indicates that they will also love the Jesus of the Bible. Anyone who claims God as their father must, must love Jesus as well. If there's no love of Jesus, then God is not their spiritual father. Remember, that God, the Son, Jesus, came from the Father into the world. It says it again in the prologue, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And so we understand that Jesus was sent from the Father into the world such that he would manifest the Father. This is exactly what John 1.18 says. It says that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that is the Son, he has made him known. So if you want to know God the Father, then you have to look to Jesus. And Jesus makes that clear. God the Son, Jesus, came not of his own authority, but he was sent into the world by the Father. We see that over and over again in the book of John. We see that in chapter 4, verse 34. 
Why, though? Why? Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. God the Son, Jesus, was sent into the world that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If you want a verse to take people to that's crystal clear, John 5, verses 23 and 24 is your verse. You can talk to Jehovah's Witnesses about this. You can talk to Christian cults about this. That's the verse to go to. That the Son is deserving of the same honor as the Father. He deserves worship, not just respect. He is the second person of the triune God, and he makes that clear in the book of John. And the irony is this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But the world, the majority of the people inhabiting this earth, hated the Son, which ultimately shows that they hated the Father. In our text, we have people who claim to know God. We have people who claim to love God. We have people who claim to be children of God, yet they do not love the divine Son, which proves that they are not the spiritual sons of God. Jesus simply says, if God were your Father, you would love me. What you love, who you love, speaks loudly of who your father is. And we have to take a pastoral aside for a moment here. Because we need to rightly identify what does it mean to love Jesus. What does it mean to love Jesus? We live in a world that robs the meaning out of the word love. You guys understand that. We see it all over the place, but we're going to redefine it, and we're going to change it, and we're going to... Identify it with the world system. But we have to understand biblical love. We must not understand love primarily as emotional or affectional. We must not understand love primarily as emotional or affectional. Now, don't get me wrong. Would to God we have affection and emotion for the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible does not place primary emphasis on emotion, when it speaks of loving God and loving Jesus. Loving Jesus is simply being allegiant to him, being committed to him. Yes, even being obedient to him. A biblical doctrine of a believer's love for God insists that such love is expressed primarily, hear me now, such love for Jesus is expressed primarily in acts of obedient worship rather than elevated feelings. Furthermore, love of God is primarily expressed in love toward others, especially in the household of God. Well, that sounds great, Pastor Kenny, but you haven't given me any Bible text yet. That's what you should be thinking to yourselves, so let's go to the Bible. John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. This is, I can't wait till we get to John 13 through 17. But I'll have to wait because I have to wait. But man, I can't wait to get there. Listen now, Jesus is about to go to the cross. And he washes his disciples' feet. And this is what he says to them. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Pastor Jeff already looked at John 15. After speaking of abiding, the commandment is what? That you love one another in the same way I have loved you. We look at John 21, and this is amazing because Peter has rejected the Lord three times. He has denied him three times, and he's going to be reinstated in John 21. But notice what Jesus does. He links a love for him with outward acts towards others. You know the question three times. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to say, do you love me? And and Simon Peter is going to say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you the first time. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs, verse 15. He says in verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. Finally, in verse 17, he asked the same question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. Jesus, three times, possibly a link to the three denials, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus is equating loving him with outward acts towards others, especially in the household of God. We could look at 1 John 2, verses 3 through 5. We could look at 4, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11 and 19 through 21. We could look and we will look at 1 John 5. This is what the same writer says in 1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God or born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. What does it mean to love Jesus, brothers and sisters? It means to be allegiant to him. It means to be committed to him. It means to be subservient to him, submissive to him, obedient. And it is expressed in love for others especially the household of God. And so we circle back around and we ask ourselves, what do we love? What do you love? Who do you love? If you love God, then you love Jesus. That is, you are committed to God, and then you are committed to Jesus. Such commitment is expressed in obedience to their word which insists that a love of God goes hand in hand with the love of his people. I love, it's funny how the Lord works things out sometimes. I love Pastor Jeff's prayer this morning. Asking that there would be real, tangible, definable love in the midst of this congregation. Why? Because when we see that on a regular basis, then we know, ah, This church loves Jesus. In their watching world, they may come to Jesus, they may not, but we will be distinguishable distinguishable from the world. By God's grace, one of the things that I've loved about so many visitors over the last six months or so, is I've heard a handful of times, just so loving, just so welcoming. Let's do so more and more, saints. Let's do so more and more. This leads us to a third question. What do you desire? What do you desire? 
These, again, are questions that must be answered in determining who our spiritual father is. Jesus says in verses 43 through 44, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And now it's explicit in verse 44. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That first verse there, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. There's two different words that are uh, speaking of language in this text. And the the Greek suggests that Jesus is differentiating between the way he speaks and what he speaks. In other words, his opponents do not understand his manner of speech. Why? Because they cannot grasp the content of his speech. And Jesus makes it crystal clear. You cannot bear to hear my word. This is an expression of, of inability. They lack the ability to hear Christ's words because they were not born again, and they lack the desire to hear Christ's words. Why? Because they are naturally sinners, slaves to sin, and op- in, in opposition to God. That's clear in verse 44. This is the verdict of Jesus You are of your father, the devil. And Your will is to do your father's desire. There's really no way to misunderstand this, friends. The clarity of this verdict is astounding. Why do you oppose Jesus? Because you're not of God. Rather, you are of the devil, and you need to be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. But it's not just a guilty verdict. There's much more there. Jesus' words declare the nature of his opponents. Their father's nature and desires are by definition evil. And they are too. The text says that they want, they will, and they desire to do what Satan wants, wills, and desires to do. And this is what we call biblical hard truth that naturally we don't want to accept. And we can be honest about that. But if we're going to be faithful to God, we must take the text as it comes to us rather than reinterpreting it for the world or for our own hearts. Jesus says that they desire to do what the devil does because they are of the devil and not of God. And so we ask ourselves, what do you desire? What is the construct of your continual will and constant wants? Jesus' description of the devil in contrast to himself really helps us to identify if our characteristic desires are in alignment with God and his word, or if it's in alignment with the devil. 
Jesus gives three descriptions. First, the devil is a murderer from the beginning. Likely, the thinking is going back to the temptation of Adam and Eve that brought sin and death into the world. But in contrast, the son has no beginning. You realize that the difference in prepositions there? That we're told from the beginning he was a murderer. That indicates a beginning. But we're told in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. He was already existent. And so Satan was a created being, but the son is ever existing. But more than that, Satan is a murderer, but the son is always associated with life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, John 1.4. For as the father has life in himself, so he granted the son also to have life in himself, John 5.26. Jesus said, most famously perhaps, I am the way and the truth and the life. It's astounding. Jesus says that he is life, such that you're not living apart from Jesus. And even through Jesus' death, he's associated with life both in the resurrection on the third day, but and the fact that his death brings what? Brings life to many. Jesus is constantly associated with life. And so the question is this, do you desire the things that are associated with true life? Or do you desire the things that lead to death? Second, Jesus compares himself to the devil in this way. It says, the devil is one who does not stand in the truth. Why? Because there is no truth in him. In contrast, as we just read or just said together in John 14, 6, Jesus is, is depicted not only as the life, but also the truth. His origin is from the true one, John 8, 26. So we have to ask ourselves, do you desire to stand upon the truth regardless of the outcome? Or are you unable to do so because you are not associated with the truth? And thirdly, Jesus says this of the devil. This is so important for us to get. We do what our nature is. We act on the basis of our nature. And so Jesus says, when the devil speaks, he speaks lies. Why? Because it's out of his own character. It's out of his own being. That's who he is. That's elucidated later, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. And again, we clearly see this in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. This is why we must be born again. We need a new nature. We need a new creation. Why? Because by nature, we are of the devil. But in contrast, Jesus speaks from his character also. Jesus, in verse 40, was simply a man who has told the truth that he heard from God. In verse 38, he speaks of what he has seen with his father. Beloved, what do you desire? What do you desire? Do you desire the things of God or do you desire the things of the devil? Certainly what your 
regular, unabated desires, desires trend toward has something to say about who your spiritual father is. This brings us to our fourth and final question that must be answered to determine who your spiritual father is. What do you hear? What do you hear? Jesus says, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Please don't miss the clarity that Jesus speaks with here. Notice what Jesus doesn't say and then what Jesus does say. He does not say, although I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Rather, he says that it is precisely because he tells them the truth that they do not believe him. In contrast to the lies of the devil, Jesus speaks truth. And the primary problem for Jesus' listeners is that they are opponents by nature. They are of the devil. The devil hates the truth. He speaks lies when he speaks, such that when Jesus speaks the truth, those who are of the devil also hate the truth that Jesus speaks. On the other hand, true disciples of Jesus are true disciples through a new nature as adopted children of God, which is, which is achieved by God's grace through faith in the person and work of Christ alone. Really, the essential element of this text and this discourse, this dialogue that Jesus has been having, is the truth. What will you do with the truth is the question. Jesus says that he is truth. He says that he speaks truth. The question for you and I, what will you do with the truth? It's sad that I have to qualify that statement. But such are the times, and so I will. I'm not speaking about your truth. I'm not speaking about my truth. I'm not speaking about his truth. I'm not speaking about her truth. I'm speaking about the truth. The self-authenticating, objective truth, which is of God. He is both the source and the standard of truth. And there is a time coming when everyone will fall in line with the truth far better for you to do so today than later. What will you do with the truth? Why is this so important? Because the cost of freedom, true freedom, is the truth. We saw it last week. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You want the life of freedom in Christ or the life of sin and death and slavery? If you want a life of freedom, then you must hear and receive the truth, not just about God, but also about yourself. 
This is why we don't shy away from the doctrine of sin here at Redeem South Bay. It's because it's truth. It's our natural status before God. And unless and until we realize that, we will be humbled to call upon the name of the Lord. And it's good for us to be humbled by our natural status as sinners. But unfortunately, those in our text seemingly choose to believe that old lie of Satan. Oh, please don't believe it today. Surely you will not die, said Satan in the garden. The fact that Jesus was indeed telling the truth is elucidated by the next verse. Jesus says, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? You can almost hear the pause in the text itself. Which one of you convicts me of sin? No one says a word. Well, why do you not believe me? The point is that Jesus cannot be pinned down for any wrongdoing. Why? Because he was always right doing. He simply and faithfully did what the Father sent him to do in all truth and in all righteousness. And here we have the sinless truth right in front of his opponents. Yet they couldn't pinpoint him for any wrongdoing, and at the same time they chose to reject him. He tells us the answer, why they don't believe. He says, whoever is of God, whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. We have to remember that. We can preach until we're blue in the face. But my confidence is not in my preaching. My confidence is that insofar as we as Christians are faithful to the word of God, he will do that which he wishes to do with it. I don't care how eloquent or not you are. I don't care how knowledgeable or not you are. Christian, proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified and let the chips fall where they may. For through the proclamation of Christ, some will hear because they are of God, elect before the foundation of the world, and others will reject. But when they reject, they are not rejecting you, they are rejecting God himself. And God will be faithful to bring about his desired outcome. trying to think if I want to read this or not. Oh, honestly, my heart's heavy right now, saints. I think we need to care more for the world in which we dwell. Why? Because we've already seen John 3.16, God loved the world in such a way that he sent his only begotten son 
And I'm concerned that far too often, saints, what we do is we sit on high and we point down, look at them, look at this, and we raise ourselves up with self-righteousness. But we have nothing to offer God. Open your mouths and care for the homosexual and the transgender and the X and the Y and the Z. Preach Christ. And if they hate you for it, then praise God. But don't you dare. Don't you dare in your heart look down upon them as if you are better inherently. You're not. Before the grace of God, go you and I. Preach Christ. Hold firmly to Christ. Love Christ. Love the truth. Don't shy away from it. Don't shrink back from it. But also, if loving Jesus requires us to love others, then love others well. Love others well. One commentator said about this idea that they believe they were children of God. He says, everything about them is distorted and unnatural. They are outsiders to God, his kingdom and his promises. They are blinded by the God of this age, which is Satan, 2 Corinthians 4.4, and dead in their own sin. A clear and more damning conclusion is hardly conceivable. And yet the reader cannot forget that these opponents of Jesus, intentionally unnamed in this verbal exchange, are the epitome of those Jesus came to save and the object of God's love. It's good for you, Saint, to remember to dwell upon who you were before God's grace was made manifest to you. If we do that, Christ is exalted. We are motivated to preach the same Christ that we know and believe. On the one hand, they heard the very words of God, for Jesus was speaking directly to them. But on the other hand, They heard the words of a mere man, a man whom they thought was crazy or demon-possessed, as we'll see next week. There's a difference between hearing and hearing. The one who is not of God doesn't hear God. The words that they hear is little or nothing to them. But the one who is of God hears the word of God such that they are received, accepted, respected, heeded, and obeyed ever increasingly. What do you hear? What do you hear? We've seen in this text that there are at least four questions that must be answered in order to determine who your spiritual father is. What do you do? What do you love? What do you desire? What do you hear? I've argued And I want to highlight again that your customary lifestyle speaks loudly of your spiritual father. Indeed, actions do often speak louder than words. As a matter of fact, Paul exhorted Timothy to do what? To watch his life and his doctrine closely. Why? Because the two are intertwined. I don't know where you're at hearing this text, hearing this passage. You may be encouraged, you may be humbled, you may be upset, I don't know. 
But the one thing that I want us to be clear about is this. There are two categories. Two, only two. When it comes to spiritual fatherhood. You're either of God or you're of the devil. Either the God of the Bible is your father or the devil of the Bible is your father. You are either free or you are enslaved. My greatest desire for everyone hearing my voice today is simply this, that you would know that you do not have to be a slave to sin and death and Satan any longer. For if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And if you abide in his word, by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, then you are truly his disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Christian, may you do so more and more. And friend, unbeliever, may you do so today. Lord, would you bless these precious saints in this church and the friends who have gathered here. Lord, our desire is to hear the truth of your word. Yes, even hard truths that are hard to swallow. Lord, we don't apologize for them. We're thankful for them. We don't make excuses for them. We praise you for them. For you speak clearly and directly to us such that we could see ourselves as we truly are and thus see our need for you. And that's my prayer. That's our prayer, Lord. That those of us who have you would more fully and deeply understand that we need more of you, that we would decrease and that you would increase. And Lord, for those who have heard your word this morning, that they just wouldn't be mere words of a man, but that they would hear and heed the words of Jesus Christ. Lord, I beg and plead with you to do that which only you can do. Give glory to your name through the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of your saints. This is our prayer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.